Hello and welcome to Handels Bank and Insights. I'm Daniel Marney. On this week's economic update, we will review various indicators showing what's going on with UK economic performance and conclude looking at the UK's government risk register, which has recently been published. And I'm delighted to be joined by James Sproul, Handels Bank and UK's chief economist. So James, let's have a look at some of the data releases we had last week. We had the Bank of England's money and credit data showing some data on mortgage approvals and also what's going on with savings and consumer credit. Can you just outline what's going on there? So what's been going on with the number of mortgage approvals? Now, they've been falling, which is actually completely in line with our forecast. We think that the the total number of sales, house sales in the UK is likely to drop by as much as half over the next uh, couple of years. And that's largely due to, of course, uh, the rising cost of capital. So it it makes complete sense that as mortgages become more expensive because interest rates have gone up, uh, there's many people uh, that are deciding not to to borrow and not to move home. Uh, And also lots of people don't like selling into falling markets either. So um, the the vendor's side of the equation has also been been coming back quite considerably. So there's been a lot of stuff on that. And as I I say, it is very much in, in the expectations. We think that the the overall um, nominal fall in the value of homes is likely to be between between 8 and 10%, and we're probably about halfway through that. So I would expect to see house prices falling really for the remainder of the year as people get used to those higher interest rates. And it's well to remember that um, the, the impact of interest rates or rise of interest rates can easily take a year or more to have its full impact. So we've only just seen interest rates going up to five and a quarter percent. Now, they didn't raise it, of course, at the last meeting, but they did raise it in August. So, you know, it could easily take until the middle of next summer before we see the market fully shaken out and absorbed the present rises that we've seen coming through in those interest rates. So it's going to be some time on all of that. But money credit looks at also, of course, credit and what's happening to savings as well. And what's happening to credit is being it's, it's it went up slightly. But I'm not particularly concerned about that just yet because it still is within the bounds of sort of what could be considered normal. If we were going into some significant economic slowdown, which we're not expecting, we would might we might well see credit starting to, to pop up as people were using credit to maintain their standard of living or maintain their, their bills, etc., uh, paying their bills. But we've not seen that just yet. So it's a little bit of an increase, sure, but it's not anything alarming just yet. What we have seen, though, is um, savings falling away. Now, one of the things here is, of course, that when interest rates were, were at rock bottom levels, it didn't really matter what savings product you were in, you weren't going to get any sort of return from it. But now, um, obviously, interest rates have gone up, and there's many, many alternatives, some of which are offering some pretty pretty tempting rates of return, and so people are naturally responding to that, and, and I think that sits behind one of the reasons we've seen the falling away in savings is they've been shifted to other products which give you better returns. So people are re- behaving in, frankly, a per- perfectly rational way. Yeah, of course, including gilts, which are obviously offering quite attractive returns, at least compared to the last 10 years at the moment. James, let's move on to some of the other indicators of UK economic performance. We obviously had uh, some confirmation uh, final numbers for GDP, showing that the UK is well has grown faster than uh, Germany and France uh, since the onset of the pandemic, but not comparing particularly well to other G7 countries. Yes, frankly, I find this a little bit frustrating at times because, yes, the UK is, was the laggard and people were busy pointing at that, and then now it looks like it's, it's much more middling in, in comparison to lots of the Europeans. I think the bigger question really is uh, what's holding Europe as a whole back against places like the US and Canada, which are seeing much, much greater 
uh, growth. So um, the fact that we're 0.1 above or behind France or Germany, whatever, is not, to me, as critical a, a, an area as the fact that Europe really needs to up its game in terms of economic growth overall. Uh, and that's that's certainly one of the things. But as you say, we have come up, and, and this is a confirmation of the, the data we've seen from the Office of National Statistics, which raised the UK GDP by 1.7% a few weeks ago. And we are now well above the level we were at the end of 2019. But as I say, the trend rate of growth is really the thing we need to, to address. And that's the sort of thing we'll, we'll talk about in, in other podcasts as well. But in general, we've got a, a real issue about productivity. We've got an issue about an, uh, investment, which we'll talk about more in just a second. Um, and also what's going on in terms of employment within the economy as a whole. And I think that's another area which clearly has come through in the last um, week's data. And just digging into that, that employment data, and the, the stuff that they've just published only goes back to um, or, or ends at the end of Q2. But what it does is it breaks employment down into various subcategories. And so it looks at not just do you have a, a job or not, it also looks at you know, are you seeking more work? Are you part-time but would like more? Are you discouraged and not looking for a job at all? Um, and in general, what we've seen there is that the, the sort of headline rate at that time was 4%. About 1.6% of that 4% is long-term unemployed, i.e. unemployed for more than six months. And we know that those people often um, have quite a bit of difficulty moving back into the, the labor market. And the longer somebody remains unemployed, the more that their, their skills start to atrophy, and the more that they follow the habit of, of good working habits. Uh, and so that becomes a problem. And getting those people into work clearly is important, but it's just more difficult. Uh, and there's also a number of people who are who are underemployed, who, for instance, may be working part time, and they wish they were working more, but there there maybe isn't enough work from their employer, etc. So again, um, we've got about seven percent uh, total unemployment um, in, in if we added all those together. Now there's an interesting thing called the Z Pop index, which comes out of the U.S. Federal Reserve, and they looked at the the U.K. and the Z Pop, and Z Pop looks at uh, are you employed? Are you not seeking work at all? In other words, it, it, the, the fact that you aren't employed isn't something you're looking for. Or you're working part-time but don't want more uh, more hours. Of course, a high Z-POP index uh, is lots and lots of people being employed. and they're, or, or if they're not employed, they're happy about not being employed. And that Z-POP index for the UK it has moved up to an all-time high. Now, as I've said with housing and various other indicators, you could always move on from all-time highs. But at some point, some sort of reversion to mean becomes more likely. And that seems to be, I think, one of the things we're looking for here. Now, our forecast does look at UK unemployment to start ticking up, not at alarming levels at all, but we do think it's likely to soften up over the coming six to 12 months. I think that that Z-POP index is likely to have be seeing its highs right about now, perfect, to be perfectly honest, and we'll see uh, the employment market getting, getting a bit softer um, and, and therefore um, more people seeking work. It's you know, The Z-POP index at an all-time high does sort of indicate uh, we're coming to the, probably the end of a particular trend. And James, earlier in that answer, you were talking about investment. And if we look at business investment specifically, uh, it could struggle uh, for the rest of the, this year, not just because of the higher interest rate environment, but of course that gen very generous super deduction got phased out at the beginning of Q2. But if we look at the latest figures for business investment for Q2, they actually went up, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. So what, what what's behind that increase? Well, I think there's a number of things to look at here. First of all, um, Economists have the, the, the uh, investment, which goes by the very sexy name of gross fixed capital formation, which includes both business investment, private sector investment, as well as government investment. And what had happened over the last couple of quarters was lots of um, government investment, but not as much private sector investment. 
And within private sector investment, we look at a number of different elements of it. One of those is, for instance, investment in dwellings. Now, that had been um, typically been a really important part of business investment, but that's been falling away recently. It's not been being pushing forward. And we look at transport investment. And uh, again, that, that number tends to be very, very lumpy because oftentimes it's dealing with aircraft, and that's a very expensive thing. could easily be running into the hundreds of millions of pounds. And so if an airline orders you know, a number of new airliners which are delivered, that can warp that quarter's figures quite substantially. One that's of particular interest here is what's happening to, to ICT, information, communications, and technology. Now, that had been expected, as you say, to fall away as a result of the removal of the super deduction. And what they've had come through is some revisions on that figure. They've not fallen away as much as were initially expected. So we have seen a bit of falling away in that, but not quite as bad as we might have been ex- uh, uh, thinking that they were um, when, the, when the data was originally released. So the ONS has done a bit of a revision on all of that. Uh, looking forward over the, the coming year, uh, I think we're going to see a, a reasonably cautious uh, investment cycle, largely because, of course, the cost of capital has gone up, and therefore um, the expense of making investments has gone up, and therefore that's going to have clearly an implication, quite apart from the fact, as you point out, there's been um, some revision in the uh, incentivization the government's given to businesses to make investments. Okay, and I'm sure that'll be very crucial as to whether the UK avoids recession or goes into recession over the next few quarters. So, James, let's conclude with that UK government risk register that's been recently published. Um, I believe it looks at quite a wide range of risks, ranging from, you know, wars, pandemics, financial market instability. Um, So can you just outline what it's telling us about how likely uh, some of these risks are, but also how impactful some of these risks could be on the UK? Sure. As you say, they they have two measures. They look how likely is something. And the most sort of likely category is that you have a 25% chance of this risk coming up within the next two years, which is actually, frankly, pretty likely. That is not a de minimis risk at all. And then, of course, it goes down to um, you know less than 0.2% chance of something. But it could be something really very, very impactful. So, for instance, if you look at something that's very, very unlikely but high impact, would be some sort of major nuclear accident. And clearly, we can all appreciate that that would be horrendous, but it's very, very, they're, they're judged to be very, very unlikely. What we are, are most scared of, of course, things that are both unlikely with a big impact. And the, the, the number one there thing there is um, a renewed pandemic. Uh, we've all been all lived through COVID, and we all appreciate just what sort of impact that had and how expensive it was. So um, clearly that's that's one area. So just to, to highlight a, a number of different ones, they looked at what was the chance of a significant impact or significant shock in terms of uh, financial markets. And the answer was uh, it was judged as being moderately likely, but not all that uh, much impact. So it would have a lot of impact in terms of, of financial cost or potentially financial cost, but it's not the sort of thing that's going to lead to mass numbers of deaths that a, a nuclear accident or a, a, you know, a war might, might lead to. Equally, if we looked at you know, what's the chances of a, of a major bank failure, again, that was judged even less. That was judged as less likely, um, but again, with a modest impact. Some of the more interesting ones are things like what would happen, for instance, if they were to cut the cables that run between Europe and the United States, the the underwater cables. Now, remembering that about 97% of all traffic between Europe and the United States travels via undersea cables, there's very, very little of it that goes through satellites. So if you cut those cables, you really have a problem. And a majority of the cables going from Europe to uh, North America run through the UK. The risk there is thought to be relatively small because there's many, many of these cables. And if, if one or two of them were, were cut, um, then obviously the, the traffic would simply go through through other routes. But if it were a more coordinated attack, 
that could potentially cause deep, deep upset to our financial markets, the way that business works, the way that information is passed around the world. And so it's, I think, a good thing that the, the government publishes this risk register, which tries to look at, the, as you say, the full scale of risks from pandemics to wars to you know communications upsets to natural disasters. Um, and it, it does, does look at the whole thing. And, and it tries its best to give uh, an assessment of both, as you say, the, the likelihood and the impact. So as a bank, there are obviously a number of risks that we look at through stress tests and that kind of thing. But I believe that the UK register doesn't look at some of these things. Yes, some interesting stuff, because of course, the Bank of England asks us as a bank, but asks, ask all banks to have a look at a huge number of risks every year. And we have to stress test our balance sheet against those risks. And those risks could be for instance, we could look at what would we happen if we had a very high inflationary scenario? What would happen if we had a, a, a severe deflationary scenario? What would happen if we were to see a major realignment in economies? So, for instance, the sort of thing we've seen with people trying to move production away from China to other places in the world. So these are sorts of risks that are also out there and that we as a bank clearly have to, to measure. And um, it's not something that's covered in the risk register. So I think the risk register is very good about the sort of risks that might hit the, the general economy and society, but they don't cover stuff that we as a bank also have to worry about. But of course, that is something that we, we do uh, quite a lot of work on over the course of a year, making sure that we do meet all of those Bank of England regulatory requirements. Great. Thank you very much, James, for those insights as always. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate us on the app where you're listening because it helps other people find us. And you may also want to share this episode on social media. We look forward to you tuning in next week. 